This morning our passage will come from the book of Esther, if you'd like to turn there with me. Book of Esther, starting in uh, chapter 7, verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. And Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word, as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear from the guiding light of your word this morning. We ask that you would shine that light brightly into our hearts and minds so that we might become more like Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I mentioned to you last week, as we continue here to consider the scenery of chapter 7, that the scene itself, and you'll notice as we conclude this particular scene this week, the scene itself is characterized as a question over who gets life and who does not. The reason is you carefully read and consider that as the working question of the passage is because both main characters, that is, um, Esther and Haman both, as lead characters in the drama of the scene of chapter 7, both of them are pleading for their lives. Esther does that as we considered last week, earlier in the moment of the conversation. This is the second feast. So they gathered and Hasuera said, just ask me what you want and I will indulge. I, I will bless, I will give, whatever it be no matter what it is that you name. Um, Esther then, again, with cunning and skill, knowing that Haman is the target, she asks to delay and to throw yet a second feast. Now we're at the second feast. Haman is excited because he was the only one invited. Again, naive to the calculus, Esther is not. Haman, Ahasuerus, and Esther now are sitting down for their second feast. And both in this feast plead for their lives. Esther reveals to Ahasuerus the question that he has been asking all along. What is it that you want? Name it and I will give it. And you recall she asks for reprieve. Deliver me and deliver my people. Deliver us from our shared and collective affliction. Esther has revealed, as we considered the text last week, in these moments where she pleads for her own life and the life of her people as though the life of her people and her own life are that in the same life. She has finally identified herself in this moment to be a Jewish woman. 
course, this revelation makes clear indeed, without a doubt, it's not hyperbole, it is genuine, it is authentic, very real. Esther, even though she be the queen, is vulnerable to the edict. The revelation at the table of only Ahasuerus, Esther, and Mordecai that Esther herself is a Jewish woman causes severe panic for Haman. Notice verse 6 again. Uh, well, you can consider it verse 5 as we transition to verse 7 here in just a moment. But again, then King Ahasuerus, after she expresses her covenantal context and union to her afflicted people, Ahasuerus asks, who is the individual who has set this about? Who is this man? Uh, where is he? Uh, who dared to do this thing? And Esther said, it is a foe. It's an enemy. Undoubtedly, I get that, but who is he? And then, can you imagine, she turns and says, the man at the table with us, wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Again, we can hardly imagine or perhaps come to appreciate just how the oxygen was sucked out of the room for Haman. When he saw it a few weeks prior, when he sought to destroy Mordecai for not bowing down to him, and he was really upset at the show of disrespect that Mordecai would not yield to Haman as he ought, even by the king's edict, and Mordecai made that line in the sand. Then they inquired, what is Mordecai? Well, we found out he's Jewish. Is that so? Well, Haman decided then and there, I'm going to destroy Mordecai. I want to get rid of him. And it's not enough to punish and get rid of Mordecai. I want everybody that he's associated, even genealogically, I want every one of them wiped out. I want to annihilate all of the Jews. And then you get into the text and you see that at the, at the point we don't have time, but throughout, the chapter, uh, throughout chapter 3, it's the development of where he approaches Ahasuerus. And he figures out, what's the best time to approach the king? How should I pitch my, my, my idea? And then he lives in ambiguities. Well, you know what, Ahasuerus, there's these people, they do these things, they don't really get on, they don't get on with others, they're not really uh, obeying the king's laws, they have their own practices, you know... It really is to no advantage of the king to allow them to remain within the provinces. Again, that is an argument made throughout redemptive history against God's people everywhere they go. By the time you get, and we're fresh out of 1 Peter, and it's very analogous, the same in the New Testament covenantal people of God, the church, where they too are a diaspora people who are persecuted. Again, in some eras of redemptive history, it's more severe than others. We could go back to uh, Israel, that is the people of God's oppression in Egypt and the barbarism there. And you can see it throughout redemptive history. But again, there's this spirit of suspicion even in the first century of those who call themselves Christians not being obedient to the Roman Empire incestuous perhaps, as they call one another brother and sister. 
Again, the malignment of God's people is nothing new. And again, it's nothing new in our day and age either. But it is the arc of history. But when Mordecai thought, I'll get rid of every single Jewish individual within 127 provinces of the Persian Empire, never would he have realized at that time that he therein condemned the queen herself to death. Sure was it an overreach, undoubtedly, to decide I'm going to kill Mordecai, but I'm going to wipe out all the minority group associated with him throughout the entire Persian Empire. Sure was it an overreach, yes, but again, even then, he would have never imagined that he was referring to Queen Esther herself as well. Now at the dinner table in the second feast where only Ahasuerus, Esther, and himself are seated, he finds out my word, Esther is Jewish. Of course, as I mentioned to you, the author captures in verse 6, at this announcement, Haman is terrified. And he's greatly concerned, of course, of the queen and what her next move will be as now her plan unfolds directly before him and now he has some measure of understanding of the weight of the moment that he was brought to the second feast. I get it. I see what's unfolding. But not just the queen that is giving him terror but it is the, queen, or the king's response as well. Notice verse 7. You see in the end of verse 6, uh, Haman is terrified. Well, why? Verse 7, the king arose in his wrath. This is all happening in a single moment. Divided by verse here in the text, but it's a single scene in a single moment. Haman is terrified. The, wrath has, the, or the king has arisen in wrath. They were all enjoying wine drinking and feast. But the king gets up in wrath and then he walks out into the palace garden. Haman's concern is really twofold if we consider it just for a few moments. On the one hand, it is an obvious overreach that Haman is well aware of now. He knows that he is caught. He knows that he reached too far. He let his pride get the best of him because his hatred of Mordecai, and now in his overreach through rage, he has deeply insulted King Ahasuerus. Now again, what Ahasuerus thinks of the revelation that his wife is Jewish, again, we're uncertain as to what he thinks of the response as well, that she indeed is a covenantal member of the Jewish community. Either way, he is livid even if it be slightly towards Esther, it is absolute toward Haman. The king, and we can consider throughout the book as we've looked at it passage by passage, the king is not one for facing embarrassing moments very well. The embarrassing moment at the very beginning of the book with uh, Vashti, not dancing before him when he required it in order to show off his power and his pomp and his circumstance with the most beautiful woman in 127 provinces at his beck and call. He didn't handle that embarrassment very well. She was banished from the entire empire, never to appear before the king again. 
The king undoubtedly in this moment has egg on his face. He approved the edict. Even if there was some lack of clarity at the beginning as Haman kind of duped him in to not reveal to them it was the Jewish people, nonetheless, by the time the edict was written, he had read it. And at the close of the scene, he and Haman sat and drank together while Susa was thrown into chaos. Indeed, embarrassed. The wife, again, though he maintained a debauched and debased lifestyle of fornication, the text does indicate to us there was a particular place uh, for Esther in his life. And now he finds out, perhaps he didn't even realize she was Jewish. But again, he's not one for humility in moments of embarrassment. He's a man of rage and revenge. The second aspect of Haman's concern, again, he knows that the king has egg on his face, and he knows how the king behaves when he is so embarrassed. But the second aspect of Haman's concern here, when the, when the text captures it as one of terror, is he has implicated King Ahasuerus in the death of his own wife. He has implicated King Ahasuerus in the death of his own wife. Again, we know this by historical record because we understand how the Persian Empire was strictly governed by the rule of law. We covered this a few texts ago, a few months ago by now, but you see it throughout the text that one thing is written down and the entire empire is to obey and honor the law. It was an empire, even by historical record, one that was noteworthy for strictly being governed by the rule of law. So again, when we go back, at this moment, the king, in his embarrassment and in his wrath, he flees the table, he walks out into the garden courtyard because he understands that he himself has been implicated in the death of his own wife. How so? Let me just give you a couple particulars, and that is simply this, the mark of the king's signet ring. You remember when uh, Haman to bind the entire province, or all of the provinces, the entire empire, in obedience to the king's edict, he received the king's signet ring. This is like the mark of the, of the, of the ring on wax that authenticates the contents of the document itself. When Haman had figured out which month would be best to annihilate the Jews, when he had figured out what was in his best interest, how to accomplish his goal of Mordecai and his people being absolutely decimated, all of their goods robbed and taken, put back into the treasuries of the empire, he received the signet ring, which authenticates the statements in the document. When the statements are authenticated and sealed by the king's signet ring, it secondly binds all members of the society to fulfill its contents. So think of it when you put it together that the Persian Empire is strictly governed by the rule of law. And the law at this moment has the king's authentication ring upon it. All society is to obey it. Simply put, the death of Queen Esther is law.
This the king knows. This Haman knows. And the king's response is to flee the table into the courtyard to consider his next move. The king is in a real conundrum now. And perhaps if we could speculate into the mind of the king, given what we do know of the context between the authentication and the binding document for all of society, that the queen must now die alongside all of her kindred. She will die with them. And she knew that that was the real possibility. Please hear my request, for we, my people, were sold, and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. The king is indeed in a real conundrum. Perhaps we could speculate as best we can to see the king in the courtyard asking himself perhaps this, can I punish Haman alone for a plot I myself approved? You remember as the king has faced moments like this two and three times in the course of the story of Esther, he has relied on counselors and men of wisdom to gather around him and give him kind of a, hey, let's throw this around and let's talk about our next best move. What can we do here about Vashti? What can we do here about finding a new queen? How should we go forward and behave? And men have given him words of advice along the path. However, at this feast, there are simply three people there. Esther, who is making her case for her life. Haman, who is terrified and offers no advice. And Ahasuerus, who now is alone in the garden uh, courtyard. Haman, or, uh, Hesuerus has to answer this decision on his own. Can I punish Haman alone for a plot I myself approved? How can I rescind, perhaps we say as a second thought on the king's mind, how can I rescind an irrevocable law that I myself have established? Again, even if it be by proxy through Haman, it bears his own ring. The king in the courtyard is angry, full of wrath, and Haman knows it. And yet, as the king flees for the courtyard, he remains indecisive. So as the original reader, we're, we're stuck here and, and we're drawn into the intrigue of the moment. What will occur next? Perhaps he comes in and kills them both. Maybe Haman prevails because it's an irrevocable law and we all know the nature of Persian law and how society is bound to keep it, even the king himself. The king himself being indecisive and not knowing his next move, we, remove, we, we move back as the people of God to consider the theme of the book together. And the line that is cutting across every text within the book is the story of the providence of God. Such a moment as this reveals yet again the same theme throughout from start to finish of this entire book, and that is that God governs all of his creatures. And noteworthy here, you remember the second portion of that definition of providence. God governs all of his creatures and all of their actions. And through this guiding, controlling providence of God governing all of his creatures and all of their actions, a way forward for the king is established. 
the conundrum ceases by the activity of Haman. Notice how, if you move to the text with me and consider verse 8. So, uh, again, Haman terrified, wrath of king, Haman stayed. And it makes sense as the king flees, Haman turns to beg for his life from Queen Esther. He is sensing that the wrath is for me. Esther is still in, in flux, understanding what will the king's response be to the fact that I just revealed that I too am Jewish. And then and the Haman is the enemy and the foe. And then Haman is thinking, surely it won't be you, it will be me. I implicated him in your death. Both are caught in this moment. And yet Haman reveals that he himself, so terrified, is to beg for his life from Queen Esther. Reason being, the writer says, he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. He knew he was going to be most likely killed. But with the king in the garden, verse 8, and the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As he's returning, notice what is happening as God governs all of his creatures and all of their actions. Haman pulls a fatal, fatal, fatal error. In begging for his life, Haman falls on the couch where the queen was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence? In my own house. You see, God, in his providence of controlling all of his creatures and all of their actions brings Haman to his final account through his own action of falling upon the couch where the queen was. It was a terrible, terrible decision. Now if we do just for a moment a, a teensy bit of spade work in our English translations, and we consider the translation choices that are before us, you'll note for yourself in your English translation, the Hebrew term here actually translated as assault. Now, now uh, you, I don't know, again, there might be a handful of, of uh, English translations present within the room. Um, and, and where the king gives response uh, to the word assault, and then we pair it with Haman's activity of falling on the couch and the outrage of the king. And I say to you outrage because of the repetition by the work of the author, that, 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 that it heightens the king's response twofold. To one say, will he even assault, there's your Hebrew term that we have to key in on, on English translation, the queen, as he's falling, will he assault the queen? And then we, we take assault and we understand it by translation into what follows. And he says, in my presence... And then he says, in my own house, 
Right? So, so it's amplifying, the author is amplifying for us through the king's response what took place and how we understand the translation of the term assault. Again, this term translated assault by the English Standard Version appears elsewhere in our Old Testament Hebrew text. And it's translated in two other ways. But you'll notice in the semantic range, assault, and words that re, uh, involve or belong to the root of the idea of assaulting, the term remains. It's translated to subdue. So, so here you have the term. Will he even subdue the queen in my presence? Okay, so, so you have, well, it, they're choosing in English by context to understand it as assault, right? So, so it belongs to the word grouping of subdue, assault, or finally your other choice would bring into subjection. But you notice, however it is translated, assault, or, 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 or subdue, or bring into subjection in my presence, it all belongs to the same idea. And it is the fatal and final error of Haman, who regularly overreached and over-responded. It's fitting that he panic. It's fitting that given enough rope, he would put it around his own neck. This is who he has consistently been. If we were to put the words together, and no matter how we translate it, let's just stick with the ESV's translation. It is undoubtedly fair to say assault. If we were to stick with assault, subdue, or to bring in subjection, it appears throughout this text, as is translated here, that Haman intends to physically assault the queen in a burst of angry desperation. Haman is up against the rock in a hard place, and he knows it. He's a man who has been adapting to the situation. As soon as he sees it, he responds bitterly, and yet he consistently does what? Overreaches and overresponds. Now here he is, begging for his life. The, the king leaves, he knows he's in trouble, he turns to the queen, begs for his life from her. Again, the response for Haman then to find no respite with the queen. And think about how stone cold Esther most likely was, knowing she is the instrument of God's warfare against his enemies. Here is the wicked Agagite Haman begging for his life from a Jewish woman. It makes sense, honestly, in some measure, not purely, but in some measure, it makes sense in verse 7 that Haman is terrorized by the end of 6. He knows that the, the king plans to do away with him, most likely, because the king is leaving and throwing a fit of wrath and rage in the courtyard. So he turns and he knows his life will be snuffed out. He turns to, uh, to Esther to, as the writer says, beg for his life. But Esther will have none of it. By the time we get to the end of verse 8, Esther has given no reprieve or sign of mercy toward Haman whatsoever. Perhaps between chapter, or excuse me, verse 7 and what took place by verse 8, where is the assault, but there was some conversation exchanged that just isn't recorded. We don't need to know it. It's not important for us. 
But surely there was an exchange. Haman begged for his life to Esther. And seeing that he was getting absolutely nowhere with her, in a fit of panic and rage, he assaulted her. Or, 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 well, we would say he attempted to assault her. Um, Again, maybe you'd see that in some cinematic version where where you would see knowing I have nothing left and in a fit of rage as your life is about to be snuffed out, you reach out to, to, to choke the person. Uh, knowing I, I, I'm, I'm done and it's because of you. You have done this to me or, or whatever is going on in the head. Haman, again, makes a fatal error. But we attribute it to what, beloved? The providence of God who controls all of his creatures and all of their actions. God is executing judgment on Haman. You see, and this is in line with redemptive history and will be redemptive historical story all the way until the end of the age, beloved, where God is bringing to pass all that he has promised. God is keeping covenant in the most dark hours for Israel, his people. He is keeping covenant because he is a God who keeps covenant with Israel, his people, with the church of the old covenant and the church of the new. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. And so here in Israel's darkest hour, where, where they are set to be annihilated by Persian law, God is keeping his promise that he offered through Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And so it is through Esther. At the banqueting table, God fulfills his covenant with his people. And Haman the Agagite will be no more. Further, you'll notice that Zeresh, that is his wife, and Haman's advisors, who offered him a word of uh, cryptic warning as he was moving forward to the feast, thinking, hey, guys, you should know, I'm the only one that gets to go back. And then you recall, uh, uh, Mordecai was praying through the city where the king was reminded, you know what that man Mordecai did for you? Oh, that's right. Have we done anything for him? No, we have not. Oh, what should we do for him? Oh, hey, Haman, do you know what I would do for a man that I want to truly honor? What are your best ideas? Again, Ahasuerus similarly always relying on somebody else to make those definitive moments and choices for him. So also here in the garden, he is absolutely flummoxed as to what can I do about Haman? What what am I going to do about me? What should I do about Esther? And then God provides a way for king through Haman's own activity. He assaulted the queen. Now I know what I can do with Haman. But as I mentioned to you, there is a word of prophecy offered about Haman, perhaps he's realizing in these last few moments, these last few breaths, he recalls a conversation. You know how things like that can happen to you? You find yourself in some sort of conundrum or you find yourself in some high point victory and you recall perhaps a word of advice or a word of conversation that you had before that puts into light based on this context of these circumstances. Perhaps it is for Haman, he recalls, oh man, I remember what Zeresh, my wife, had said to me before I left. The writer, Bluff, wants us to note it. It's crafted just so by vocabulary usage that we would note the word of Zeresh 
and the enemies of God. Notice, if you will, with me just briefly as we work towards our close, verse 13, Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, you know, about Mordecai, this, that, and the other. Then his wise men, his counselors, and his wife Zeresh. Once they found out about Mordecai, you notice what they say. Zeresh takes the lead. Now, the writer is using the vocabulary and uniting the two phrases and using the same term, nafal, for the term to fall. It's used in both instances, and it's to draw our mind towards, again, God governing all of his creatures and all of their actions. Zeresh said to him, well, let me just say this, um, not a real word of encouragement, right? Zeresh somehow understands the arc of history. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to nafal, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him. But will surely nafal before him. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was nafal on the couch. You will, you have begun to fall. You will surely fall. Haman was falling. Again, the writer is using language of the same Hebrew term in all three instances for to fall in order to bring the words of Zeresh to an actual fulfillment in the life of Haman. Why? Because, beloved, God governs all of his creatures and all of their actions. Zeresh surely didn't understand the weight of what she was saying there, but Providence surely did. Zeresh was offering nearly a word of prophecy, though she just thought it's basically the arc of history. We would say by the time that Haman now is perhaps recalling those comments, my word indeed, I have fallen. We would perhaps look at this same text and say something like, we have, my, how the mighty have fallen. And we'd say it in every sense of the word. Finally, we conclude the scene of who gets life and who gets death where Haman is executed. Notice verse 8, the king is, is uh, you know, finding a way forward to deal with Haman in isolation of having to take responsibility on his own. Uh, Haman will be done away with, and, and that gets him in some measure out of the edict context and situation, but we'll see it going forward. As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's faith face. Uh, uh, again, uncertain, but we could probably guess, it, it, you know, you've seen it in cinema where you throw a hood over someone's face. That, that, that could be it. They could have covered it this way and drug him out, neither here nor there, but there are men ready to cover Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who was in attendance to the king. Uh, he's a man who has an idea given him by providence and the stirring of the Spirit of God and the governing of all of his creatures and all of their actions, so does this man Harbona step forward. Moreover, the gallows, 
Again, maybe feeling the energy of the moment. Uh, we don't know if the king asked for a good idea. What could we do next with him? Harbona was prepped and ready to go. Moreover, the gallows, uh, you probably should know that, that Haman has prepared for Mordecai. Um, you recall, just in case we have forgotten, whose word saved the king is standing at Haman's house right now, 50 feet high, 50 cubits high. And for feet, you recall, that's 80 feet if we were to do the cubic transfer. 80 feet high. So Mordecai has a role here as well in getting revenge upon his enemy. Verse 10, And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman. And I want you to note carefully, as we're on our last point here, um, I want you to be careful to note uh, that so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Once Haman is hung publicly 80 feet high for everyone in Susa to see the wrath of the king that he had in verse 7 is abated. I note for you uh, there in our time as we're working our last point and then simply we'll conclude, and that is there are two options here for understanding the gallows construction, and I wish you to know them. I missed this when we were speaking of it uh, back in verse 23 of chapter 2, so I wish to make note of it for you to understand because it'll appear one more time as we move forward. But in chapter 2, you remember the two assailants that planned the assassination attempt against the king? They too were hung, and it says on gallows. I simply didn't acknowledge, notice in my reading, and bring to light the construction of the gallows at that time. As I'm reading it this time in in preparation for this time, I noted it more carefully and saw indeed that the construction of the gallows really throughout history is twofold. On the one hand, it is either uh, representing crucifixion, and I just bring this to light Uh, because of its historical note, and we can tend to think of gallows as perhaps we have thought of them more recently in history as someone who was hung by the gallows, and it's it's a noose. Um, But that is not the historical record here. The gallows here represent, again, you have two options. One is either crucifixion or impalement. I think the best historical evidence is I spent my time on it this week and wish to bring it to light for your sakes in reading of the text and what really is taking place in the execution of God's enemies. The best direct evidence seems to point toward being impaled. The Assyrians practiced this, and you remember that, and you can think of it in the context of Jonah. But you remember historical record reveals the Assyrians had a history of impaling their enemies and hanging them on the city gates. They take a dead man and, and, and onto the impalement post, onto uh, the gallows. People hated it, but again, it was a clear warning to anyone who trespassed here, uh, think twice. And uh, the Persians uh, and the Babylonians continued the practice and it appears by historical record very convincingly, convincingly that the Persians continued it as well. That's why it said the two men in the assassination were hanged on the gallows. Haman is hung 
on the gallows, and, and you'll see that in the next uh, couple of texts away, we'll revisit the issue of the gallows once again. Here, Haman, that is the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, is impaled 80 feet high at his own home, that which he planned for Mordecai. In conclusion then, when we began this, uh, th this scene, uh, two weeks ago, we began this scene. I mentioned to you once again this morning, it is all about who gets life and who does not. And here we learn through this text that the arc of history is set toward life, beloved. It, it is arcing toward life, but particularly so for all who trust in God through faith. That is what we see in the story, beloved. That, that, that is convincing from the text. I don't have to leap. I don't have to work. It is evidenced in the text that history is arcing toward life for all who trust in God through faith. Moreover, as the revelation continues and we get to the proclamation of the New Testament, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, born in the flesh, it is the proclamation, same similar, in the gospel or the good news event of Jesus Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of who gets life and who does not is found in the promise of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, beloved, as we celebrate Advent and we come back this evening to sing together, to encourage one another, to lift our voices in praise this Advent season, we rejoice over God's promise for protection from death, which is exclusively found in the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself did say, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for the gift of our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, our eldest brother, our Savior, our Lord, our King, our prophet, and our priest. All to him I owe. We give great thanksgiving for the gift of salvation, and, and we thank you providentially that we in this time have a time set apart within our society to celebrate and particularize a time set upon the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, wherein as pilgrims we celebrate his first advent, and we long for his second. And as pilgrims in between the first and second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, we nourish and encourage one another together in the faith throughout our days, but particularly and solemnly on the Lord's day. We praise you, the Lord Jesus Christ, for having raised the first day of the week, solemnizing it for the day that your people will gather in your name, under your umbrella, in your love, and upon your mercy. Praise be to God, our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.